Obadiah, page 914. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the 4th of July, and uh, for whatever reason, it was one of those 4th of Julys where I was particularly um, cognizant of, of the blessings we enjoy as a nation. You know, sometimes you go through the 4th of July, and you, kinda, you go through it, and it's great, and you do the fireworks and the cookout and all that. And then other 4th of Julys, it really hits you, like, Wow. You know, I'm really thankful to live in this country. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have. And this, for me anyway, it was just one of those Fourth Julys where I was like, I'm just, I'm thankful for, for the way God has blessed this nation. And, um, and I'm not about to launch into a sermon here about, you know, how America is God's special nation or anything like that. You know, God has a special people. It's called the church. Uh, but I'm thankful for this nation. God has blessed this country in some really powerful and profound ways over the the centuries. So it was interesting for me, being in that frame of mind about our country, to at the same time be studying and interpreting and writing a sermon on Obadiah, which is a a book in the Bible all about God cursing a country. You know, what does it look like when God is against a nation and God is opposed to a nation? And that's what we find here in the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament. Um, It is uh, a prophecy against a nation called the nation of Edom, uh, the Edomites. Just as God sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach against the Ninevites, so God sends Obadiah to Edom to preach judgment against the Edomites. Uh, If you look at Obadiah verses 1 and 2, the vision of Obadiah. This is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. So this is for the Edomites. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, rise and let us go against her for battle. So the whole prophecy starts with this alarm call out to the nations to come and make battle against the the Edomites. Um, And and so the book of Obadiah is is a vision of what it looks like, not when God blesses a nation, but when God is opposed to a nation. What what are the conditions? What does it look like within a nation for God to be against it? Why would God be be angry at a group of people? And Obadiah gives us a glimpse into that. So so that's the question I want to wrestle with. Though I I figure we should probably just start by asking a more basic question. What was Edom and who were the Edomites? You know, like Edom, I mean, isn't that a kind of cheese? Like, was it that a garden with a snake? Like, what's Edom? I, I, it's confusing. So uh, take out your uh, bulletin for a minute. Hopefully you got one of these when you came in. If you look at the inside flap, you'll see a map. And, and there's uh, a picture of the southern part of Israel. And you'll see the different countries there, Ammon, Moab, Philistia, Judah. And then down, you'll see Edom. So Edom was a nation to the south and southeast, especially of Israel. Um, and the, the Edomites uh, dwelt there. Uh, some of you have seen that movie, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, where Indiana Jones is looking for the Holy Grail. And he finally comes to this temple carved out of the rock. That's actually an actual place. It's called Petra. And it's in that part of the world that is today Jordan, but back then would have been Edom. And so, so that's where the, the land of Edom was. It was to the south and southeast of Judah and of Jerusalem. Perhaps even more important, though, than where Edom was is who the Edomites were. 
and they were actually distant relatives of the Israelites. If you look on, on, uh, on either side of that map, above and below it, I've kind of put a, a rough timeline of key events where Israel and Edom were kind of going back and forth. They had sort of a, a, a troubled, um, hostile history between them. But notice how they started. Look way at the top, around 2000 BC sometime, Jacob, the father of Israel, and Esau, the father of Edom, are brothers. So you have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? They're the patriarchs of the people of Israel. Uh, but Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob actually had a twin brother. His name was Esau. So there's Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is renamed Israel, and he becomes the father of 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. Esau is also named Edom, and he is the father of, of the tribes that become the Edomites. So, so the Edomites here are not some far-off, distant kind of people. They're the next-door neighbors and actually the distant relatives of the Israelites. But even though they were the next-door neighbors of the Israelites, and even though they were brothers and relatives in a sense, they are now under the judgment of God. And so we, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that made God ready to wipe out the Edomites? What, what is it that makes a nation to be cursed by God? And as we look at the, the prophecy of Obadiah, it seems that um, th- there's a lot of things, but kind of two major themes come to the forefront. There's two primary reasons that God is bringing judgment upon the Edomites. And the first is this. Here's the first one. Pride. God judges the Edomites for their pride. Look at verse 2. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. The Edomites were a proud people. They were arrogant. God hates pride. Why were they so proud? Well, for a number of reasons. If you look at verses uh, 3 through 9, there's a number of things that the Edomites were proud and kind of puffed up about. And sort of God lists them one by one and shows how he's going to bring each of those things down. Uh, They were proud of their land. You know, you look in verse 3. Your pride has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home in the heights, who say to yourself, who can bring us, me to the, down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So they were proud of their land. You know, it, the, the land of Edom was a very rocky, mountainous, cliffy, raviney, steep kind of area. If you look at that map again and you see... Uh, where there's Moab and Judah, and between it you see the Dead Sea. And if you go down to uh, this little place called Ezion-Geber, and there's another body of water there, which is the Gulf of Aqaba. And if you were to draw a line from the Dead Sea down to the Gulf of Aqaba, there's actually a, a valley, a kind of rift valley that runs north to south there. But on either side of that rift valley, rising to the west and rising to the east, were craggy, steep, cliffy mountains. So... So to, to be the Edomites in their land, they, they felt secure. They're like, who's, who, really, who's going to come attack us here? You know, the land of Edom was not the kind of land that you could just roll chariots into and take it over because it was mountains and ravines and cliffs. So uh, a great place to be a defender, a bad place to be an attacker. To take out the Edomites would be like storming the cliffs of Normandy. 
Uh, to take out the Edomites would be like going after the Taliban up in the Tora Bora Mountains. You, you know, you, you don't just drive a tank up there and start shooting. You've got to go up in these mountains and caves and nooks and crannies. And, and so that's, who the, that's where the Edomites were. They were like, really? You want to mess with us? Come on up. See if you can take us up here. You know, we got the high ground. We know this area. And so they felt secure. And they were arrogant. They felt untouchable. And God says, mm-hmm, I'm going to bring you down. Another thing that made the Edomites proud and, and feel untouchable was the fact that they had politically maneuvered to make a number of alliances with other nations. They were savvy political dealers. And as a result, they had all kinds of alliances and friendships with all kinds of countries. But God says, I'm going to turn that on you as well. Look at verse 5. If thieves come to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked, his hidden treasures pillaged. Here we go. All your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. So, so your alliances and your political savvy, and I got friends in high places, they're going to turn on you, Edom. All these things that make you think that no one can touch you, you're going down. Your pride has deceived you. Or what about the wise men in Edom? Look at verse 8. In that day, declare the Lord, will I not destroy the wise men of Edom, men of understanding in the mountains of Esau? Here's another kind of interesting thing about uh, the land of Edom. There's a tradition in the Bible that says it was a place where there were lots of wise men. You know, this ancient wisdom tradition sort of thrived in Edom. Some of you guys know the book of Job. Job was a wise man in the Bible. It says Job came from the land of Uz. You know, it's like, where was Uz? You know, where, where is that? And, uh, it, and a lot of scholars think Uz was actually the land of Edom. So, so there's a wisdom tradition in Edom. It's not just that they have craggy mountains that are easily defended, and it's not just that they're politically savvy and have made good friends with other nations. It's also that they have, you know, they have universities there. That's where the smart people go. The smart, clever, sophisticated people are from the land of Edom. But God says, I'm going to destroy your wise men. And then, of course, warriors, verse 9. Your warriors, O Teman. Teman was a city in Edom. Your warriors, O Teman, will be terrified, and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Even your tough soldiers, your elite troops, will not be able to stand against this. So all these things that the Edomites took pride in, one by one, God says, I'm bringing that down, I'm going to destroy that, that's not going to protect you, no, that's not going to keep you safe. And God is rebuking the Edomites for their pride. You know, God does not respond very well to pride. Pride and God, they don't get along very well. Bringing pride together with God, it's kind of a a matches and gasoline kind of thing. God hates pride. Uh, and, And he's really clear in the Bible just how, you know, you bring pride into his presence and it's like a reaction. Boom. God hates pride. Uh, let me read you just a little montage of verses. You don't have to turn here in your Bible, but just listen. And what, these are little verses just from all over the Bible that describe God's attitude toward the proud. And, and what I want you to listen for is listen to the verbs, okay? Listen to the verbs that describe what God does in response to pride, okay? 
Here we go. Psalm 31, 23. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud, he pays back in full. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not endure. That's Psalm 101, 5. The Lord is on high. He looks upon the lowly, but the proud, he knows from afar. Psalm 138, 6. Here's Proverbs 16, 5. Get this. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. And then the famous verse from James 4. It's also in 1 Peter. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So did you hear all the verbs? God pays back the proud. He does not endure the proud. He knows the proud from afar. He detests the proud. The proud will not go unpunished. God opposes the proud. I mean, when you get a pretty consistent reaction here. God hates pride. And he hates proud nations. So, so when nations become arrogant, and when nations think they can do whatever they want, and nobody can touch them, and, and nobody can mess with a particular nation, and, and when nations think that they can violate God's laws and, and, and just sort of run roughshod over right and wrong, you know, God doesn't deal well with that, that kind of national pride. And Edom had come to a place where they thought they didn't need anyone. They had their friends. They had their mountains. They had their army. They had their own learning and their own wisdom. Who needs God? We're too smart for God. We're too strong. We're too untouchable. Who needs him? And in that kind of pride, God, God opposes a nation. You know, there's a, there's a fine line between patriotism and pride. It's a fine line. And, on, and I'm, I'm all for patriotism. I'm, I'm patriotic. I love my country. You know? I love my family. I'm patriotic for my family. <laughs> you know? I, love, I, I love being an American, but there's such a difference between patriotism and pride, between patriotism and jingoism, between patriotism and, and starting to see yourself as untouchable and above. And, and when nations cross that line, when cultures cross that line, they get on the wrong side of God. God hates pride. And so finally he had it with these, these people. You look through that, throughout the Old Testament when God deals with nations, pride is typically part of why God condemns nations. But God hates pride in all its forms. God hates proud leaders. Many of you here are leaders. You're, uh, you lead a classroom. You lead a, a group at work. You lead a work crew um, you lead uh, a, a company, some of you, um, you, you know, lead, in, maybe some of you lead here in the church, maybe you're a pastor, elder, you lead some kind of ministry. And ah, the danger of pride for leaders is constant. I mean, I think this is one of the biggest problems with leadership is people become leaders and then it goes straight to their head and then, you know, they can do whatever they want and act however they want and, and behave differently. Uh, I heard a pastor once say, as, as he was thinking about leaders in the church, he says, you know, the number one characteristic I'm looking for in a leader in a church is humility. He said, the second characteristic I'm looking for is humility. And the third most important characteristic I'm looking for, well, you can guess, humility is, is loved by God. But, but when leaders get in power and they start getting all full of themselves, oh, God hates that. He opposes the proud. Um, we have to be careful as a church not to be proud. You know, we, we could be proud as a church. 
look at this awesome building, you know? And it's full, and the people are happy, and they're praising God. And so far, I'm with you. That's awesome. Let's thank God for that. But then you cross that line of, hmm, to pride, right? And, well, I don't know what those other churches are doing wrong. <laughs> I don't know. You know, you, right? You cross that line from thankfulness to pride, from gratefulness to self-righteousness, and, and suddenly that, that meter ticks and, and you've get, you get on the wrong side of God. You know? Yeah, God is blessing our church. Why? So we can be a blessing. Anytime God blesses you, whether it blesses you as a nation or blesses your family or blesses you with work or finances or gifts or abilities or blesses a church with health and, and life and vitality, it's always, always so that you can be a blessing to others. Blessing isn't bad. Just don't interpret it the wrong way. Don't interpret blessing as well. <laughs> you know, interpret blessing as, wow, what a gift I've received. What a stewardship I've received. Now let's leverage whatever blessing God's given me in whatever area of my life to bless others. So, okay, God's blessing South Shore Baptist Church in this season. Great. What are we going to do with it? Let's plant churches. Let's encourage other congregations. Let's, let's all go out and, you know, okay, you're getting good teaching in this church. Great. What are you doing with it? Like, let's go out and start a Bible study at, at school or in our workplace. Or let's talk to that neighbor or that, that Ninevite that everyone has shunned. Whatever. But, like, let's export blessing if God has given us blessing. Let's not become like the Dead Sea where the blessings go in and they don't come out and the sea becomes uninhabitable. We need to be a conduit for God's grace into the world and and be careful of pride, be careful of pride. Even in our own lives, I mean, I just, you know, pride constantly haunts me. It constantly haunts all of us. It, It is, I think it's a lifelong battle for every person to fight against pride uh, I did something on my Facebook page. Uh, some of you may have seen it, your fa- my Facebook friends. But uh, I put up there a question. I, I said, uh, finish this sentence for me. You know you're infected with pride when... Dot, dot, dot. And I just let people post things on there. And I got all these responses. And, you know, some of them were funny. One person said, you know, you know you're infected with pride when you wake up in the morning. And I was like, <laughs> that's actually true. Um, but... But it, it, let me just rattle off some of these, uh, th- these cool responses. You know you're infected with pride when the rules don't apply to you, especially God's rules. You know you're infected to pride when your needs are more important than others, when it's completely the other person's fault. Hmm? You, know it's your, you know you're infected with pride when you think it's your job to set everyone else straight on everything they're doing wrong, but you don't you don't see what's wrong with yourself. You, you see the speck, but you don't see the plank. You know you're infected with pride when you're easily irritated, easily angered, hypercritical, always pointing out faults. You know it's, you're infected with pride when you dominate conversations and every conversation turns back to yourself. You know you're infected with pride when you believe your gifts and accomplishments in life are all from you and not a blessing from God. You know you're infected with pride when you can't say, I'm sorry, and just leave it at that. (laughs) And you know you're infected with pride when you rarely pray. I got it, God. I don't need it. I don't need you. I'm fine. Pride is always there in our hearts. 
And God hates pride. He's very allergic to pride. And he opposes the proud. And so I I was thinking, you know, that's why I had Godwin read that passage from the Beatitudes. Because, you know, what a contrast between the pride in our hearts, the pride among nations, the pride among people, and the kind of person who actually enters God's kingdom. And you see it's a very humble person. Uh, Put a bookmark here in Obadiah and go back to that Matthew text that we read. Just a few pages later, page 958. Look at Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes. Here Jesus is describing who receives the blessings of the kingdom of God. Matthew chapter 5. Who receives the blessings of the kingdom of God? Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a very spiritual person. You will not enter the kingdom of God. It's only the person who says, I'm not spiritual. I'm so not spiritual. I, I'm very Jeremiel. I'm, I'm all about myself and about the world and, and worldliness and my comfort. I'm not a spiritual person. The person who thinks they're spiritual is out. But the person who confesses their spiritual poverty inherits the kingdom of God. It's meekness and, and lowliness. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who say, ah, Oh, God, I just, I I struggle so much. You know, I I just grieve my spiritual poverty. I'm so sorry, God. I want to be saved and right with you. That person will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Meek, of course, is the opposite of proud. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So not the person who says, I am righteous. I am a good person. Therefore, I should enter the kingdom of God. But the person who is hungering and thirsting, the, those verbs imply the person doesn't have it, right? If, if, you know, if, if you've had a, a ton of things to drink, you don't, you don't thirst. You thirst when you haven't had something. You, you don't hunger right after a huge meal. You hunger when you haven't eaten all day and you've been working outside. That's when you hunger. So to hunger and, and thirst implies wanting something you don't have, wanting something you're lacking. And so the person who is who is accepted into the kingdom of God is the person who's saying, God, I'm not righteous. I lack righteousness. I lack spirituality. Ah, God, I'm not anything great before you. And the person who enters the kingdom of God is the person who's looking for grace, not for a reward. The, The person who's coming to God looking for just some recognition for, come on, God, look at me, seriously. Give me some respect here. You know, that person's out. But the person who comes to God saying, I've got nothing, there's no reason you should take me, but I've heard, I've heard the news that there is a, a Savior who is crucified for sinners like me, and that there might be a, a shot at amnesty if I come to this Savior. Oh, if that deal is out there, you know, let, let, me, let me have it. <laughs> I, I've been hearing on the radio there these, uh, you, you know, you listen to radio sometimes and these commercials come on, and there's all these commercials about uh, tax relief services. I don't know, I hear those a lot, and I, I, I guess it's a, a problem for a lot of folks. But, um, you, you know, there's, there's this, 
they'll come on and say, oh, there's a new program the IRS has just released that you don't know about, but, but you can have a lot of your debt canceled if you'll just apply now. And, and it's kind of like, what, 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 what? There's some secret deal? There's some secret thing where I can have my, my taxes canceled? I would love that, you know, my debt. Not that I'm in tax debt. I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> if one were in ta- at least not that I know of, uh, but, but, but if one were in tax debt, you know, it'd be like, whoa, whoa, there's some secret deal. And that's how it is with the gospel. Like, what? There's some, there's some deal where God, God paid my debt through the Savior Jesus? And the only people who are going to lay hold of that are those who acknowledge their poverty of spirit, who mourn their sin, who are humble, and who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness because they know they don't have it themselves. Those are the people who lay hold of the, the, the gospel forgiveness and grace. These are the people whom God embraces, the humble and the lowly and the repentant. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so you go back to Obadiah, and that's one reason God judges Edom. Because like so many people and like so many nations, they had become arrogant, self-righteous. They thought they were untouchable, and God's like, really? Guess what? No one escapes me. But there's another reason, the second reason. Here's the, the other part, one, the other half of the book that God is judging the Edomites. It's not only because of their pride, but secondly, because of their prejudice. So you can always remember the book of, e- of Obadiah now, Pride and Prejudice. Got it? When you, think of, when you think of Obadiah, think Pride and Prejudice. You got the whole book. All right, Prejudice. And when I say prejudice, I'm specifically referring to um, not, not kind of general racism or, or hatred of other groups, but specifically prejudiced against God's people. The Edomites were judged because God was, because they had persecuted the people of God. They had messed with God's people. And, and you don't mess with God's people. God is very allergic to pride, and God is very allergic to people messing with his people. He doesn't like it. And he, it, it arouses his, his judgment and his anger. Look at verse uh, 10. Because of the violence, I'm back in Obadiah now, verse 10. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. So to understand verses uh, 10 and 11, you have to understand a little bit more of Israel's history. So if you take out your um, bulletin once more, there was an event, there was a defining event for the people of Israel. And you can see the timeline there. I'm not going to go through all these dates, but Israel and Edom had all this kind of back and forth, a lot of hostility. But a day finally came. If you look way down at the bottom, second entry from the bottom, 586 B.C., that was the day that, that Jerusalem was finally destroyed by Babylon. So the Babylonians came in from the north. Uh, Babylon is like modern-day Iraq is where that is. And they came in and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And what happened was the Edomites pigpiled on top of it. And they took advantage of Jerusalem, God's people, being judged and destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and they, they helped rather than weeping for God's people or helping God's people or being grieved for God's people being destroyed. They were like, yeah, now's our chance, Mm-mm-mm. right? It's like in those nature shows where the, uh, the lion catches the zebra 
and the lion's like chowing down on the zebra. And then, and always around the edges are like these vultures who are like, you know, hey, what's up? Yeah. You can eat that? No? Okay, it's cool. You know, right? So there's always, these, there's always these vultures like, you know, kind of looking, you know, and they kind of walk away and they kind of come in and, and eventually they, they get a little bit of the food. So, so the zebra is Jerusalem. The lion is Babylon. And the Edomites are one of the vultures. That, that's what happened historically. The Edomites are like, woo, you know, and, and rather than, you know, crying out to God that God's people were judged, they jumped in. They, they pig-piled in. And, that, and God's like, you don't mess with my people. God can mess with God's people, but no one else can mess with God's people. God can discipline and judge and confront his people, but no one else better touch his people. Those of you who are parents understand that, right? I, I you know, my kids know how I can be, I, you know. I'm the one who can spank them. I'm the one who can take away privileges. I'm the one who can yell at them. But, like, someone else starts getting harsh with my kids, and the whole thing flips. And now, you know, I'm like, woo, you don't touch my kid, and all that happens, and all that parental st- So that's how God is. He's like, I can judge my people, but who are you, Edom, to touch my people? You can't touch my people. And because of their prejudice against their, their own brothers, against the Israelites, God comes in mighty judgment against the Edomites. Look at verses um, 12 to 14. This doesn't come out so well in English. It's too bad, but in Hebrew, it's really cool. Verses 12 to 14 is actually eight negative commandments, eight um, thou shalt nots. So it's kind of like uh, the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not this and that. So, so there's eight thou shalt nots in verses 12 to 14, where God is basically saying, look, this is what you shall not do to my people. And the implication is Edom has already done all of these things. So Edom's in big trouble. So here are the eight commandments. You've heard of the ten. These are the eight. Number one, verse 12, you shall not, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune. In other words, you know, looking down your nose, being like, ha, ha, ha. Serves you right, Israel. You, you, you shouldn't be arrogant and self-righteous toward God's people when they're suffering. Number two, verse 12, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction. When, when Judah was judged, when Jerusalem was attacked, rather than weeping for God's people, the Edomites were like shooting off bottle rockets and they were honking the horns on their chariots and, you know, posting on Facebook, woohoo, Jerusalem goes down, you know. Hashtag, bye-bye, Israel, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> they, were, they were just like, yeah, finally, Israel's going down. Eh. You know, number three, you shall not boast so much in the day of their trouble. Again, that pride. Oh, it gets worse. Verse 13, number four, you should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster. Huh. So they didn't just sit outside and look. They actually went in and participated in the plunder. Hey, the gates are open. Let's go in and get a little bit for ourselves. The vultures got a little bit of the meat. Number five, do not look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster. Number six, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. Again, they actually plundered Israel. Number seven, verse 14, you shall not wait at the crossroads to cut down the fugitives. Number eight, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. So uh, eventually, you know, one or two or three people here, there would escape Jerusalem. They'd sneak out. They're running down the road for their lives. And when the Edomites see them, rather than saying like, 
oh, come on in, we'll take care of you. They, they took advantage of them. They attacked them. They killed them. They imprisoned them. And you just, you just don't do that to the people of God. God does not put up with it. And so there's coming a day of judgment for all those nations that would mistreat God's people. And it's true in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant for the people of Israel, you don't touch the people of God. And it's true under the New Covenant for God's New Covenant people, the church, all those who believe in Christ, both Jew and Gentile. You don't touch the people of God. Look what God says in verse 15 and 16. Actually, let's go all the way through 18. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your own deeds will return on your head. Just as you drank on my holy hill. Okay, so they went into Jerusalem. They went in and they partied and they were clinking their wine glasses. And woohoo, we win. Na, 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 to the, Jew- the Jerusalemites. So all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. So God's like, yeah, you want a party in Jerusalem? Okay, here's a party. Here's called the cup of my wrath. Bottoms up. You know, you had enough? Too bad. I've got more. Until, and this is kind of an Old Testament image of judgment. is God forcing someone to drink until they're so drunk they collapse and die. Like it's the cup of his wrath. Here you go. Have some more. Have some more. You're going to drink it, drink it, drink, and then you'll be gone. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. And the house of Esau will be stubble. And they'll be set to fire and consume it. And there will be no survivors from the house of Esau. The Lord has spoken. All the tables will be turned. So this is a word of warning to the nations. It's a word of warning to all peoples. To not oppress and oppose God's children, because God will make up for it someday. You know, and around the world, there are, there are Christians, even today as we sit in safety in this beautiful place in our country where there's so many blessings and provisions. We know we have brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are imprisoned, who are arrested, who are harassed, who are marginalized, who have a difficult time just kind of functioning in society because of their social ostracization, because of the gospel. People are suffering. It, it, you know, if, if, if you're a Christian in Egypt today, it's a tough place to be a Christian. Um, if, if you're a Christian today in, um, in Syria or in Iraq, it's a tough places to be a Christian today. Um, I, I was reading uh, about Bedouin tribes. I was just reading about that. I never heard about this before, but I guess there's a, a lot of human trafficking going on now among the Bedouins where they're capturing Christians and, and, you know, sort of holding them hostage and torturing them, trying to get money um, b- because of their faith. This stuff is going on. And, and we read about it in the news. And, and those brothers and sisters have to kind of wonder, like, God, have you forgotten about us? And God hasn't forgotten. He keeps track of all these things. And God will bring it to account someday. You know, God, God sees. But, you know, make no mistake about it. God is a big mama bear. And if you play with the cubs and rough the cubs up, Mama Bear is coming. You may not see Mama Bear yet. Mama Bear may be hurling at you through the woods, and you're like, ah, cubs, you know, and messing with them. But someday Mama Bear is going to come bursting out of the forest, and the day of the Lord will come because God does not take kindly to either pride or to prejudice against his people. I think this is a word of encouragement to us too, though, for those of us who are Christians 
to just patiently endure, to patiently endure persecution in all of its forms, whether you're in another country where you're going to jail or suffering the loss of your property, or even here in America. Uh, you, you know, things are changing in our country. It's, it's changing. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I'd be curious to, you know, just hear at some point from those of you who are in your 70s, your 80s, you know, the, the America you knew, I mean, it's changed. You know, you know the, to, to be a Christian 50, 60, 70 years ago, to really follow Christ and to hold to the, the morality of the Bible, you, you still would have been in the mainstream. E- even if people didn't obey the Bible themselves, to hold that kind of position, people wouldn't look at you and be like, you're, you're messed up. You know, you're, you're a bigot. You're a bad person. He would have been like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of what generally people believe, even if people didn't obey it. But, you know, over the last 50, 60 years, just the, the moral climate has shifted. There, there's been some clicking that's, that's different now. So that to now, hold, holding to the same beliefs, holding to the same scripture, you find yourself increasingly on the margins. You know, and it, something's shifted. And I, I'm not sure where that's going. I'm, I'm not prophesying the future of America or anything like that. But, but I wouldn't be surprised if those of you who are in junior high, those who are in high school today, elementary school, those who are college students, that, that, that the country you grow up in and your children grow up in is going to be a different kind of place where to follow Christ and to stand for the gospel is going to cost you more. It may cost you more. It may cost you more socially. It, you know, you may have to get ready to suffer in some ways. You become a kind of moral outlaw within the culture rather than in the mainstream. And I don't know if that will happen, but I think, you know, we need to prepare ourselves for that. And if that does happen, this is a word of encouragement, that whatever we suffer for the gospel, whatever ostracism and marginalization we experience for Christ, for standing for his word and not moving, even as the currents move, it's worth it to stand for God because someday he's going to set it all right. You know, that's how the Beatitudes end. Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so we we need to stand firm, whether Christianity is in or whether Christianity is out, in season and out of season. Our calling is to stand firm for the gospel, whether we have leverage in a culture or whether we're marginalized in a culture. We we don't compromise on God's word and what he's called us to be even if that makes us in the, the extreme minority and suspect to the rest of the people with whom we live. And then, of course, someday God will reverse it all. Look at verses 19 to 21, and we'll just wrap it up with this. People from the Negev will occupy the mountains of Esau. So the Negev is southern Judah. The uh, people from the foothills, that, that's the western part of Israel, will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And Benjamin will possess Gilead. The company of Israelite exiles who are in Canaan will possess the land as far as Zarephath. That's way up in the north. And exiles from Jerusalem who are in uh, Sepharad, which is kind of Iraq, will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. So, so you're like, you know, who are all these places? Don't worry about it. Here's the point. When the Babylonians came in, the Israelites got kicked out. They no longer had a home. And God's saying, in the future, I'm going to bring you back and you're going to resettle the land and you're going to have 
a home once again. And certainly the Israelites did come back. They came back 539 B.C. They were released from captivity and started trickling back into the promised land. And they they inhabited the promised land. But still, it, it wasn't this glorious return that the Bible seemed to talk about. And then Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus, Jesus took all the Old Testament stuff and he just like blew it up and made it big. So, you know, he, he just changed it. He, he made it so much greater and grander than they could have even imagined under the Old Covenant. You know, for instance, who, who were the people of God in the Old Covenant? They, they were the, the physical descendants of Abraham. But in the New Covenant, who are the people of God? It's everyone who believes in Christ, Jew and Gentile. So the gospel goes to the nations. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. All these nations. And so God's people in the new covenant, they just go like, whoa, they explode. And now, you know, now there's like Germans and Irish and Italian and, and uh, you know, Mexicans and Peruvians and, you know, Chileans. I mean, all these different people from all over the world are, are joining the people of God. It's amazing as God's kingdom is growing. The other thing that's growing in the New Testament is the home. You know, in the Old Testament, it's, there's very much a focus on the land of Israel. But in the New Testament, God takes that promise, and again, he just blows it up. Really huge. Right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So, so we're looking forward, not to just some little piece of real estate in the Middle East. We're looking forward to the whole world belonging to God. And we learn in the book of Revelation, it's not just the earth, it's a new heavens and a new earth. So all those Old Testament promises are just escalated and exploded. And and so we read this here about people coming back and settling a land, and and God's kind of speaking it in Israel, Old Covenant terms, but oh, they don't even know, God's going to give them the whole world someday. There's, There's coming a day when God will create a new nation. Whereas it says in verse 21, the kingdom will be the Lord's. And I've got to tell you, ultimately, as much as, as we may love our countries, America, or if you're from another country, as much as you may love your home country, as Christians, our hope is in something even greater. You know, my hope as a Christian is not in the 2014 midterm elections. You know, i got opinions, I'm going to vote, I'm not going to talk about those from the pulpit, but you know, I, I've... But that's not my ultimate hope, okay? My my ultimate hope is not even in a return to the U.S. Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. Those are awesome documents, remarkable in the history of humanity. But that's not where my ultimate, like, yeah, and if I could just get there, whew, I would arrive. No, 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 no. I want this kingdom where the Lord is king. And it's not just a kingdom in one little part of the world. It's the whole earth under his reign. Our hearts yearn for the day when when the news will go out. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, our hearts long for your return. Lord, and until you return, I pray that you would give us patience. Lord, I pray that you would crucify our pride. 
Oh God, would you make us a humble people? We know that only the meek will inherit the earth. Only those who are poor in spirit will inherit this coming kingdom of God. And so God, we just pray, expose our pride. Lord, shine the light down into the little crevices of our soul, all those little places where where pride hides like a termite, way down in the foundations of our soul, Lord, and expose it. And and Lord, help us to be humbled before the cross. I, I pray that the gospel would keep us on our knees, recognizing that that we do need a crutch because we are spiritually crippled. Lord, we do need the gospel because we are lost sinners without you. And so, Lord, kill our pride. Make us very humble. Help us to be like Moses, whom the Scriptures say was the most humble man on the face of the earth. And, Lord, I pray that you would help us to endure prejudice. God, I pray that that as we feel uh, squeezed at times by cultural Uh, winds and and cultural pressures. God, I pray that we would be patient and that we would, yes, speak out for our country and, Lord, yes, speak up. But help us, God, even as we participate, to always be looking way down the road to that day when the kingdom of this world shall become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. Oh, Lord, thank you that that day is coming. Help us to fix our hope on it. Give us faith to persevere, even as we reach out to be a blessing in the time until it comes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.